Namaskar. Hello and welcome to P Guru's channel. I'm your host, Shri Ayer. Ukraine. What is happening there? How did things come to this? Whose fault was it? Who should be taking the blame? Because a small conflict in a small area of the world today stands to affect the whole world. Uh, because we all know that if something happens somewhere, immediately the price of crude grows up, then the price at the pump goes up, then the indirect prices of commodities go up. So you understand this part. So who did this thing? How could this have been prevented? Were there channels of, uh, were there options available, missed opportunities? And moving forward, what can be done to salvage the situation? So this is more of a conversation style between me and Professor M.D. Nalapat, who I'm going to bring on just a second. And, and I hope that you like this format because we're going to try and trade some ideas. Not every one of these things may be something that you may be in agreement with, but the idea is to enrich yourself with viewpoints, different viewpoints, different ways to look at the same problem. Without further ado, let's welcome Professor M.D. Nalapat. Professor Nalapat, Namaskaram and welcome to P. Guru's channel, sir. So uh, you are the guest, uh, Professor Nalapat. So I'll give you the opportunity to express your thoughts on how you see Ukraine. We had one discussion on, I think, uh, Gyan Ganga Hangout, you and I and uh, Dr. Swami, where you had mentioned about the illegality of an elected president being uh, you know, deposed in 2014 and hence Crimea. Right. So maybe we can start from that point of view, why you thought that was incorrect on part of the people of Ukraine, whether it was, again, something that was, you know, fomented from outside, because now the West is saying that this separatist thing is also fomented from outside. Anyway, so let's take, a, why don't you share your thoughts on what is playing out, where it started and how you see this thing going, then we can, you know, go back and forth. Well, Sri, uh, you know that uh, I, I frequently refer to the Clinton administration as being a disaster for the world because of the impetus it gave both communist China as well as Wahhabism. Uh, of course, uh, the Clinton administration sought to denuclearize India and, and really sought to ensure that Kashmir uh, was made a part of Pakistan. The Clinton was very bad news for India, but in India we have a lot of people who frankly either don't follow geopolitics or have a slightly masochistic impulse. So Clinton was lionized in the final days of his term when he finally was forced to come to India because this country, despite Clinton, despite his sanctions, despite this hostile activity, was consistently making progress. Well, I, I'd like to say that he began this uh, thing about NATO expansion. Uh, you know, uh, the reality was NATO was created for Cold War 1.2 between uh, the United States and the USSR, not the Russian Federation, please, the USSR. And in this context, I am very glad that Tom Friedman, whom I've been reading actually for several decades, uh, just as I've been reading the New York Times for several decades, has written in the New York Times, no less. I mean, I don't think NYT can be called a friend of Russia at all. Generally, it toes the line of the Biden administration very, very closely. Uh, but the, he has correctly pointed out that the root of the problem was in 1991, after, I mean, in the, from, from around the middle of 1992, after Yeltsin took over full command of the Russian Federation, which was the most important part uh, of the former Soviet Union, and which has got 
by far the, the, the bulk of the territory of the former Soviet Union, the Russian Federation was extremely, extremely eager to become an, you know, part of the common European home. I mean, this is not Friedman's words. I'm just talking about, you know, uh, what I used to write uh, during those days in the 90s about, uh, about Clinton. The, the Yeltsin was, well, uh, he had a bunch of mafiosi around him. And he, these mafiosis uh, had plenty of money in the West. And they were the darlings of the West. Because they were mafiosi who basically persuaded Yeltsin by whatever goodies or whatever, I don't know, to essentially toe the line of the West after he took charge of Russia. So what? So the, the, the fact is that, that the Russian people, the Russian people who, who had just undergone, as again the Friedman has pointed out, a bloodless revolution, removing the Communist Party of Soviet Union and looking to an alliance with NATO, almost in a sense, membership of the European Union. You know, the common European home, which both Gorbachev as well as Yeltsin spoke about and which is the, you know, the home of Putin, St. Petersburg, basically has had as its uh, doctrine for, for centuries, the, the common European home of the European people uh, in Russia. Well, of course, some of us disagreed. The fact is that Russians are neither European, fully European, nor fully Asian. They're Eurasian, a true transcontinental Eurasian power. The fact is that such an overture was met by Clinton, not only by uh, through ignoring it, but by deliberately trying to make Russia a pastoral state. Somehow, poor Bill Clinton did not have the, the bandwidth to understand that this was no longer the Soviet Union. This was no longer Cold War 1.0. So he tried even harder than he tried against India. And you know, Clinton did a lot of damage to India. He ensured, for example, through agents in the, in the Indian uh, establishment, that the cryogenic engine program in India was set back by more than a decade. It was the Clinton administration that, that basically hobbled that program for more than a decade. It created the, the situation for that. Clinton went after Russia. He wanted to make Russia a pastoral country. You'll remember that after the Second World War, Hans Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary of the United States, had said, make Germany a pastoral country. You know, definitely uh, once Truman took over, that was abandoned. And West Germany was integrated to NATO, given every facility, every incentive. The past was forgotten. The denazification, frankly, was, well, less than comprehensive. Let's put it that way. A few people were hanged out of the thousands who had indulged in atrocities. But that at least is better than what we did in the matter of Bangladesh, when nobody in the Pakistan military was even sent for one day's imprisonment, except as uh, POWs. So what I want to say, from that time, Russia and the Americans and NATO have treated Russia as an enemy. NATO has expanded into the countries that were once part of the Soviet Union. And frankly, 
Uh, and this was a condition that James Baker solemnly affirmed would last, which is that the United States would not expand NATO now that the threat for which NATO was formed, the war between uh, the possibility of war between the Soviet Union and China was over. NATO ought to have been disbanded. And frankly, it ought to have been reconstructed in the 90s when Cold War 2.0 actually began, which is uh, which involves uh, the United States and China having a similar systemic conflict. The, that would have made sense. It would have been meant not only of just European countries coming in, but even more so in greater number, Asian countries would have come in uh, into that alliance. The United States, of course, unfortunately, uh, Truman was on steroids on that. He went completely away from the Roosevelt uh, situation of sympathizing with the Asian people against the European colonizers. And four square made the United States support the colonizers. We all know what that happened uh, in Vietnam. The Americans stepped into the shoes of the defeated French and they were defeated in turn. Frankly, throughout Asia and Africa, and of course, among large sections of the population in South America, America suffered a huge knock in respect and prestige because it moved away from the Rooseveltian doctrine of the legitimacy of, uh, of people in Asia wanting freedom from European colonial oppression and moved entirely into a Europeanist uh, direction in which it sought to buttress European privilege in Africa, in South America, and also in Asia. That happened. It was a huge mistake, but it happened. But that, of course, has changed. Uh, it changed during uh, George W. Bush to a considerable extent. It definitely changed under the second term of Barack Obama, not so much the first term, which essentially was a Clinton White House with Obama as the president. It was essentially run almost as a Clinton White House, Clinton White House number two. But the fact of the matter is, this is where the Ukraine conflict began, because Russia understood that America would never cease to uh, target Russia as the main enemy. Now, NATO would never stop that. Some of us thought that, you know, that uh, Joe Biden would have has smelled the coffee, NATO has smelled the coffee, and they understand that, you know, from towards the close of the ninth of the 20th century, it is the Indo-Pacific that is a geopolitical pivot of, of, the, of the world, no longer the Atlantic. But I'm sorry to say, I think uh, Joe Biden has gone back into the period when he was a senator and to the Cold War 1.0, which was took, taking place throughout much of his time in the Senate. And he has completely forgotten about the reality of Cold War 2.0. He has taken his eye off uh, China, focused on Russia, and in the process, locked Russia and China together in a way highly disadvantageous to Russia, to India, to the United States, but very advantageous to China. So I want to say why President Biden uh, you know, inflicted the self-gold, why the NATO members inflicted the self-gold on European security, North American security, Asian security against the, the threat that they face, the threat from China, 
I frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not smart enough to understand why. Couple of things that I want to uh, bring out from your observations, Professor Nalapat. Uh, number one, I don't know if you have read uh, Sarila's book on the shadow of the great game. He was the last aide de camp to Lord Louis Mountbatten. Have you read that book? Of course, I've read that book. Yeah. Of course, so, I've read that book. So, if you, if you read that book, you can see how American administration was keen that India stay as a single entity. They kept sending envoys, but Churchill was trying to keep that communication always in limbo. But the Indian political leadership was not mature enough to understand that it was no longer Great Britain, but it was the great United States that won the war for the West. I mean, I am at a loss to understand why that envoy, they just gave up. They, because these guys wouldn't, you know, even give them the time of the day. I mean, Sarila says again and again that he was the one guy who could have told Great Britain, this shall stay united. You keep your nose out of this. We will take care of uh, your petrol interests or whatever. And that could have happened. So why, what I'm saying is perhaps that is what made Truman to think these guys still are not ready for, you know, engagement. Let us just continue the colony. I'm not making any apologies here. But I'm just saying that India, which in my opinion, never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. You know, Sri, India is so saintly. I mean, during that period at least, it was so saintly that in the United Nations, it fought for China vocally to be a permanent member of the UN Security Council, uh, displacing uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Taiwan at the very time when Chinese troops had entered into Indian territory in 1962. Uh, it's a small matter like the entry of Chinese troops across the, the international border. It is actually an international border between India and Tibet, really. Uh, did not stop the, the India under the government of the time from vociferously saying that China should be a member. Well, what? who was Chiang Kai-shek? Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang joined hands with Roosevelt in trying to persuade Churchill to, I mean, to basically give freedom to India. Um, I mean, Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang fought very hard for Indian freedom against Churchill, who said Indians are, you know, a beastly people; they can't be free, and that the freedoms of the Atlantic Alliance are basically meant only for Europeans. Now, I mean, I would hesitate to call, you know, Churchill a racist, but frankly, all his actions, his words, his demeanor, everything indicated something which resembles racism. So let me put it part, if, if he walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it must be a duck, sir. Well, the, the people who basically allowed, uh, I mean, you know, this to happen. You know, in your case, Sri, you come from a country where I think one of your greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln, you know, he was a man of peace, a man of nonviolence, but he recognized the immense harm that partition of the United States would do to the future of the country. And he fought for it. I'm sorry to say, in India, even leaders who had once said, that partition would happen only over their dead bodies. Well, they they sat quietly in their houses while partition took place. 
I am surprised that the Indian leadership did not battle partition because partition has been so extremely harmful. And in my view, the biggest harm has been to the Muslim community in India. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You, you look at how things have played out. You know, there is a Punjabification of what is now left as Pakistan and every ethnic component there is training from under the weight of this imposition of the uh, army, which is more or less uh, Punjabi. So this is a problem that they are facing. So let's get back to the uh, the current uh, See, if my memory serves me correct, I'm going back to Yeltsin days. Vladimir Putin was with the KGB and I think he was one of the vice presidents under Yeltsin, right? Isn't that how it happened that he succeeded Yeltsin? Yes, he was a vice president under Boris Yeltsin and uh, George W. Bush was director of the CIA and he became yes, vice president senior. of the US and suddenly he became president. So the fact of the matter is that being a spy chief, uh, as George W. H. W. Bush demonstrated, uh, didn't, does not disqualify an individual from taking over as a vice president and president of a country. Yes, yes, yes. So, from, so more or less since the 90s, it has been an uninterrupted reign, bar for a small period of time where he stepped down as a prime minister because of some constitution. And he's back again now. And now I think he has changed the constitution. So Putin is emperor for life for Russia. So this is Tsar 2.0, if you ask me, sir. Look, uh, again, I refer you back to Tom Friedman's excellent uh, analysis and in which he points out that uh, Vladimir, I mean, uh, I wouldn't look at it the same way as uh, Friedman. My take on the issue is that Vladimir Putin became popular in Russia because the Russian people felt threatened by NATO and felt humiliated by the United States and by the European powers. Exactly. I was just before this watching the UN General Assembly meeting, which for some reason, the UN General Assembly convened a whole bunch of people from Europe first to speak. And every one of them was sharply critical of Russia. Now, I wish the, you know, the same people had, had the, they talked about the sovereign rights of Ukraine to be within its own recognized territory. Well, I wish some of them would have, would speak out now at least, now that we know that we are for the sovereign, that they are for the sovereign rights of countries to be within their recognized territories against the illegal occupation by two countries of the sovereign territory of India. And those two countries have fought multiple wars with India. The very same countries that have come forward and are talking about the sovereign rights of a European country have completely forgotten the sovereign rights of the world's largest democracy and, and, and a country which is soon going to be the world's most populous country. I mean, frankly, uh, Sri, it, it beggars description. Now you take, for example, Kosovo. I mean, what happened in Kosovo? It was forcibly detached by NATO from Serbia. Kosovo was an integral part of Serbia. And in fact, it was very important. It is very important, the culture of the Serbian people. It was detached. You look at, uh, at Libya, it's been partitioned. You look at Syria, the only part of Syria where jihadis are safe is the part where people who have been funded 
and, and, and finance by the United States in the past. I must confess that the US woke up to its uh, mistakes now, but I think funding is still going on from some sources. And the US is also helping them to ensure that neither Damascus nor the Kurds take over that territory. It is a territory controlled by the so-called free Syrian fighters. As I had pointed out multiple times, these free Syrian fighters are people who on YouTube uh, are boasting of cutting the throats of uh, Shia, cutting the throats of Alawi, cutting the throats of Christians, forget about uh, Jews, cutting the throats of Druze. These are the people and despite the, uh, nobody seems to have watched their YouTube uh, videos, nobody seems to have read what they said in the years before they became the recipients of so much of help from NATO. They were vituperative about the main enemy and the main enemy, in fact, the only real enemy was Western civilization and the Western countries led by the United States. Now, the, this nest of vipers was nourished by the US and now that's the only place why Christians, why Shia, why Druze, why Alawites, um, forget, forget about Jews, are not safe. They're safe in the Kurdish zone. They're safe in the zone of Bashar Assad, the regime that Western powers tried so hard to topple in favor of these quote-unquote freedom fighters. And the Kurds, what has happened to the Kurds? They, they are the ones responsible on the ground for having destroyed the backbone of Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And what, did, what was done to them? Uh, Donald Trump uh, went in for a deal with Erdogan in which he threw them under the bus and delivered many of them to the control of Erdogan and, uh, and cut away a large section of their, of their territory and gave it to Erdogan. I'm not sure, Sri, that once there is the inevitable resurgence of terrorist groups in the region that was formerly Kurdish, but it is now controlled by Turkey, the rest of the Kurds are going to come and help because they say, why should we help? You know, uh, somebody who has stabbed us in the back. The Afghan people now, for example, they believed in the in NATO. They believed in the United States. They, they went ahead with their modernization. And may I point out the Pashtuns who are routinely characterized in the American press as a bunch of fanatics. The Pashtuns are even today their civilizational culture, their Pakhtunkhwa, is fundamentally very moderate. They have been, you know, the problem is that radicalism was put on steroids in the 1980s because of the US uh, decision, a very foolish decision to empower Pakistan and, and outsource the war in Afghanistan to Pakistan. Pakistan doesn't want moderates anywhere. The Pakistan military is a Wahhabi military from the time of Ziaul Haq. And Ziaul Haq was very much in command during uh, that period. Well, what happened then? What happened then was that the fanatics in the Pashtun community were given assistance. The moderates were either ignored or some of them uh, put down. So this is the serial number of blunders that I'm sorry to say your country, which is an essential partner of India in trying to keep the Indo-Pacific free and open, I can't believe the blunders it is doing. And in the same way, this blunder 
you have basically thrown Russia entirely into the grip of China. And the Russians are in a situation where they have improved their smart power. You know, the, whether it's the Su-35, whether it's the S-500 missile system, a fantastic missile system. Let's face it. I mean, that is more than a match for any American system. And you have thrown that power into the lap of China. And the Chinese will waste no time in trying to get as much of that technology as possible. Because in their system, you really can't do cutting-edge research. You can still do that in the United States, still, despite all this cancel mentality and things like that. I'm surprised that you're still allowed to appear on the United States after what you've been saying about the distinguished politicians of the United States. I mean, I, this is a tribute that democracy is still alive in the United States. But let me point out also that I have been uh, quite vocal in my criticism of the United States. And I remember a certain former president of the United States people, uh, his wife was also very influential, tried to get Lakshmi and, uh, and my visas not renewed when the time came for renewal of our 10-year visas. So we, we basically, you know, we were not sure whether our visas would be renewed. So with our old visas, we went via Abu Dhabi so that if we are sent back, uh, by the U.S. Uh, immigration department at Abu Dhabi airport, it will only be a short flight back home. Well, as it happens, the U.S. Uh, you know officer of the U.S. embassy in Chennai looked at both of us, smiled at both of us, and hardly exchanging a few words, stamped both our passports and handed it back to us. He handed both, uh, both our passports back with a 10-year fresh 10-year visa. So that's the United States. Thank God for that. But your country makes serial mistakes. And this is a huge mistake, even bigger than Biden's running away from Afghanistan. The most important thing, Sri, you are goading Putin into a fight that he doesn't want and you don't want. Do you think anybody believes that NATO is going to be fighting Russia when NATO could not even fight the Taliban? When Joe Biden basically scurried away from the Taliban? I mean, India has held Taliban's forces at bay, Indian military, from the 1990s. We, we do that to this day. The U.S. military scooted away from Afghanistan because Joe Biden and Donald Trump, if I may say so, decided, oh, no, no, we can't face his enemy. After that, what is the credibility of the U.S.? And today, after you're running away from Afghanistan, what is the credibility of Joe Biden as a security partner for India in the Indo-Pacific? We are asking that question when his people are asking us to cut our ties with Russia and throw Russia completely friendless in the world of democracies. Sorry, the world's most populous democracy is still friendly to Russia. And even in the days when we argued about the S-400 controversy, which frankly, I didn't realize Americans are so stupid. Otherwise, I would have been less vehement in, in asking for that not to be bought. But the fact of the matter is, that, you know, even at that time, I said, you must double, triple the trade volume with Russia, only not in critical defense equipment. And that's what I, I said at that time, because Russia is a loyal and trusted partner of India. We can't throw Russia under the bus the way the Americans threw the Afghans and the Kurds under the bus. And now it is throwing the Indo-Pacific security system 
it has so painstakingly sought to construct and which it professes to really champion under the bus by this absurd fixation on Russia in Ukraine. NATO has once again become reverted back to Cold War 1.0. And the funny thing is, I hope this is not correct. Some friends in, in your country told me that Anthony Blinken actually called up a, a guide of, uh, to advise him on how he should tackle Putin. And that guide was Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. The yes, Chinese that happened. are the biggest gainers from a Russian NATO war. Because that will that will put NATO in a morass in Europe for the next generation when they can try and eat up the whole of Asia. So this is the stupidity that Biden has done. I thought after Afghanistan and the fiasco he caused, he would be a little more careful. But I think the, the I mean the stupidity of those who advise Biden. I'm not blaming Biden. I do believe he's a straightforward man, an honest man. But the stupidity of his advisors, first of all in Afghanistan, kneecapping the Afghan military. He could have continued the logistics, send back troops. I welcome that. But keep logistics so that the Afghan National Army could prevail against the Taliban. But instead, they rolled out a red carpet for the Taliban. And now you have withdrawn from the Indo-Pacific and you are begging China for help in dealing with Russia when China is the power, the only power that will gain from a war between NATO and Russia. NATO won't gain, United States won't gain, but China will gain. Unbelievable. Um, Professor Nalapad, I want to take you back to the uh, last 18 months of American presence in Afghanistan. Now, if you look at the number of casualties that America suffered or NATO had suffered, it was in single digits. I believe America had only two casualties in the last 18 months. Uh, so essentially what they were doing is they were directing and they were coordinating with the Afghan force in keeping Taliban at bay. I mean, they really did. Taliban tried everything possible. Right. Every time there was negotiations, they would try to create a, a mayhem to try and make the other side to give more concessions. And they have been mentioned a couple of times saying that, oh my God, these guys, you guys really know what we are up to and you are you know, snuffing things out. Now, my question to you, uh, Professor Nalapat, and, and this is something that I've heard from friends, but I wanted your thoughts on how India thought this thing through. The last thing that uh, America tried, I believe, and I'm, I'm stand, I, I don't have any proof on this one. The last thing that America tried was to tell India, saying that, look, we can't be here for too long. We will continue. You just put 5,000 feet on the ground, not 20,000, just 5,000. Control Kabul, you can control Kabul with that. Plus, you can do what we are doing for the Afghan National Forces. Continue to guide them to keep the Taliban at bay. Now, this is what I have been told. And India turned that down also. Is that is this true? What are, What is your take on that? Sri, I was in favor of India sending a division to Iraq in, uh, in I think, in 2003 uh, uh, to, to basically uh, be... Uh, billeted in the Kurdish regions of Iraq. That was an offer that was made. And I think I found out later on the real reason for that, at least uh, from uh, people in the, in the in government of India at that time. And that was that Colin Powell was insisting that this force should work under a British general. Now, you know, after being colonized by the British, if you had Indian soldiers 
and you ask them to work under a British general, that was being tone deaf to an incredible degree. And that was the reason why uh, this was flatly refused by India, even though the Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. Advani, was in favor of it. And uh, a lot of people in the BJP were in favor of it. Jaswan Singh, I think, was in favor of it. But finally, I think a very clinching argument was there that Colin Powell wants the, this force to work under the British and he won't allow it independent status. Now, India is not France or Germany or Japan. India is not a, a subsidiary partner. India is a co-equal partner. It is the way, for example, the, the Americans correctly and smartly made China a co-equal partner against Soviet Union. China was not treated as a secondary partner. It was treated as a co-equal partner. India has to be treated as a co-equal partner, which uh, I hope that I, I, mean, I think Joe Biden has got that particular uh, that message. I certainly hope he has. I don't see Colin Powell's the kind of people uh, in the Biden administration. But unfortunately, Biden is surrounded by Europeanists. One question, Professor Nalapat. In your opinion, was there a proposal of this nature? And if so, did India turn it down? I'd like to say that I am glad India turned it down. If that means replacing US boots on the ground with Indian boots, especially in a situation where, as it turned out, the US withdrew logistical support uh, from the Afghan military, which was essential to, to make that uh, uh, military uh, prevail against the Taliban. I have, Sir, it I'm was a one-for-one sure. one replacement. Professor Nalapar, it was a one-for-one one replacement. Look, that look. India would do the logistical support. India would operate out of Bagram Air Base. Basically, India was going to keep that I, $80 I, I billion dollars worth of... I, I haven't, frankly, I haven't heard any of that, Sri. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's fact or, or fantasy. I haven't heard that very frankly. And uh, certainly, India should never send troops on the ground to Afghanistan. Afghans are a very proud people. They don't like troops on the ground. I remember back when George Bush invaded Iraq, talking to uh, Andrew Marshall of the Pentagon and telling him, for God's sake, make sure there's not a single soldier in uniform uh, from the US that is you know, anywhere visible in any Iraqi city. Keep them on the border to keep bad elements from coming in, but keep them far from the cities. As for example, they are being kept in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, very wisely. So frankly, uh, Sri, uh, I'm not very sure that, uh, I mean, the, but India could have trained the Afghan army. But what happened? Germany wanted to train. France wanted to train. Italy wanted to train. America wanted to train. Canada wanted to train. I mean, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, if the Holland wanted to train possibly because it's lucrative for the people who are doing the training. They were paid very handsomely out of the money that the Americans are supposed to have given to the Afghan people. Very lucrative salaries. They just didn't want to share that with Indians at all. Uh, we could have trained the Afghans. We could have uh, brought the Afghans over to India at a fraction of the cost and trained them, provided logistical support was given. You push India in there and suddenly withdraw logistical support from India. You're pushing us into a quagmire and very importantly, into a country that does not welcome a foreign presence, whether the Pashtun people or the Tajik people or the Uzbek people or the Hazaras, they will not welcome any foreign presence. They certainly, the US soldiers 
were the best recruiting agents for the anti-US forces in Iraq. They, they, they were the best recruiting soldiers for the Taliban in Afghanistan. Ghani's problem was he was seen as a puppet of the West. And you know the previous president uh, basically tried to escape that by talking a little bit against the West. And as a consequence, Karzai he became unpopular in the West. I mean, you know, frankly, Sri, sending troops into Afghanistan would have been a crazy idea. Training the Afghans, yes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, training them most majorly in India, yes. Having an Afghan universities link up with Indian universities, yes. You know that Kabul University initially wanted to link up with Manipal University. But what happened? Something happened and that was sabotaged. I mean, it was sabotage uh, during the term of the previous administration. And my suspicion is the Americans sabotaged it because they didn't want Indians to basically uh, have any kind of a role in Kabul University. So I'm sorry to say, you know, uh, your guys, any of them at lower levels have treated us in a, in a way which is absolutely impermissible to treat anyone. Society is horizontal. Countries are horizontal. Every country is the same. Every society is the same. But this kind of treatment uh, was given. India was denied basically access uh, to train Afghan soldiers. And they, until it was almost uh, NATO was on its last legs and gasping for breath. And secondly, I don't believe any promise of logistics would have been given. And thirdly, even if it had been given, it should have been given to the Afghan National Army. As you said, they kept the Taliban at bay for 20 years. The Northern Alliance tree. It is not the American soldiers. The Northern Alliance soldiers who ensured that the Taliban were wiped out of Afghanistan. And what did you do? By the time, I, almost as soon as they wiped out the Taliban, you brought back uh, the very people who were opposed to the Northern Alliance into power in Kabul. Why? under the prodding of General Musharraf. You brought, and General Musharraf said, ex-warlord, he's a very moderate guy. Ex-warlord was, was a Taliban guy who hated the US. And these guys were built up on the recommendations of the Pakistan military. And they were the Frankenstein monster that finally ensured your ignominious defeat in Vietnam. A defeat, frankly, that has made everyone in Asia question the value of the US under its political leadership. Trump, remember, Trump signed that surrender document with the Taliban and Biden just carried it out. Frankly, a lot of people are, have, are doubting that. I am not among them because I think finally good sense will prevail in Washington as it has prevailed in Delhi, especially since the Modi government came to power. So I'm not, you know, I, I still believe in that. But frankly, Biden's now, sudden refocus to Cold War 1.0 has cost him a huge amount of credibility in Asia among the countries that are really interested in keeping a free, open and inclusive Indo-Pacific and gladden the hearts of the people of the, uh, of the leaders of the very country that his diplomats seem to be seeking assistance from in preventing a war that will you know, basically fasten Putin to them for a generation, fasten Russia to them for a generation and embroil NATO in Europe 
for a generation. Well, we have to, I think, uh, conclude our conversation now because uh, we are, uh, we've been at it for a while. We started one way and we have ended up somewhere else. But basically, I think if you have to have a takeaway, I'll have to quote Winston Churchill again. Um, he said that the Americans can be trusted to do the right thing after they have tried everything else. Thank you very much, Professor Nalapat. Namaskar. Thank you.